The reading is taken from Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and clearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Great that display, isn't it? Shall we pray before we we begin? Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for Jesus who makes you known. I pray that we'll know him better after we study this passage this morning. Amen. So, um, my name's Mike, I'm one of the members here and uh, my day job normally isn't standing here opening the Bible, it's uh, to be a maths teacher. Um, And I wonder if you know the question that drives most uh, maths teachers, mad help if I don't do that, wouldn't it? When you see me in lessons, I'm dropping pens all the time. But um, anyone know the question? It's, it's the one that says, when am I ever going to use that when I finish school? <laughs> and uh, to be honest, sometimes I make the effort, but often <laughs> say, if you're asking me that, probably never. But get over it, you've got an exam in a year's time. <laughs> um, But Paul is is really concerned that all the things he said about Jesus in the book of Colossians um, have an effect on the daily lives of of his hearers. He's not bothered about having theory to get them through an exam. 
but he wants the message of Jesus to have an effect, to change Monday as well as what they listen to on Sunday. Because he's really bothered um, that Jesus, who he said is, is the creator of everything, the one who makes God known, he's the one who holds everything together. He's absolutely concerned that Jesus and his cross and his, his gospel are not just a nice idea that the Colossians think about. Um, he's concerned that they're going to be dragged away by something else. There's, that there's false teachers either there or, or circling saying, do you know what, Jesus, he's great, but you need, need a little bit more. There's, there's another wisdom that you need. Or there's, um, there's some rules that you need to follow to top up what Jesus has done. Maybe Jesus saved you before, but now you need, you need that bit extra. And two weeks ago, Jonathan used the example about rules of cake. You know, we can have rules to, to monitor our cake intake, if you like, to make sure that we, we stay reasonably healthy. Um, and he said, it, it works externally, um, but not internally. You know, rules can change what you do on the outside. They're almost like a paracetamol, aren't they? They can mask the headache, but they never deal with the actual issue that's causing the pain. And so often for the Colossians and for us, what we, we live by is we look for the rules. How do we do it? What am I meant to do for my job? And we kind of tick those boxes. And then we, we do that in the Christian life too. We say, what should I do? What shouldn't I do? And now let's go on and do it. But Paul is really concerned that that's not how we live. See, in, in verses 1 to 4, he says, Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. So it's not about um, what you do, your actions. You see, Paul's definition of a Christian isn't what often ours might be. Someone who goes to church or does certain things or even believes certain things. Paul's definition of, a, definition of a Christian is someone who loves certain things. Someone who loves Jesus. You see, a Christian whose heart has been, is someone who's captured by the beauty of Jesus. So if we're to live the Christian life that Paul intends, and Paul intended for the Colossians, we don't just need some rules to follow. We need inner transformation. We need Jesus to capture our hearts so we love him. And it's clear, isn't it, in the Bible, um, through that, that God has never just been concerned about the outward actions. Jesus says that we're to walk, uh, walk justly and walk humbly and love mercy, not just show some mercy from time to time. Or, or when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He didn't go for um, some kind of external that we might expect. We'd maybe think don't murder would be probably top of the list. But Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. See, love is the heart of the law, not actions, love. And, and the commandments go to the hearts too, don't they? When uh, the commandment says, don't murder, Jesus says, well, you've heard it said, don't murder. And if you murder, you'll face judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Jesus takes the external kind of don't murder and says, well, it's really about your heart. So when we look at it... Um, if the law has never been about our actions, if, if our performance is more about our hearts than our, our actions, then we need to love Jesus if we're to, to follow him properly. And if you're anything like me, though, when uh, you hear those words before communion, um, come if you love the Lord a little, but you want to love him more, that's probably true of you too, isn't it? That we, the battle we face is to love Jesus. 
Well, verse 3, Paul moved on to talk about how we're going to do it. Because it's a high bar, isn't it? When Jesus said the law is all about your heart, not just your actions. And verse 3 is Paul's answer, if you like, for how we're going to do it. He says, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. See, lots of us probably didn't grow up in Lynn. In fact, probably most of us. We've moved here. Um, Em and I moved three years ago from the centre of Manchester. And it would be really strange if when we moved here, we, we didn't come to Lynn Baptist Church. We stayed at our old church. We didn't make friends in Lynn. We kept going back to Manchester. We didn't go to the coffee house. We found our old coffee shop back in Manchester and generally lived as if Lynn wasn't home, but Manchester was. It would be exhausting, wouldn't it? It would be, it'd be, it'd just be odd. And that's what Paul is saying here. If, if Christ, if you died with him on the cross and you were raised with him, why would you live for something that isn't your home? Why would you live for your old life, not your new life? But the thing is, it's, it's not just a question of, of a postcode. It's not that the cross takes us from WA13 to Heaven 1, and, and that's why we change. Because location doesn't really change us, does it? We were the same people when we moved. Um, and there's a sense in which there's, there's harvesting going on, isn't there? For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Jesus says his life is like a seed. And unless he, he's buried, unless he dies then he doesn't produce fruit. In order to to produce fruit, Jesus dies, and and we die with him. There's there's almost an element of the marriage ceremony going on. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When you get married, you say, all that I have, I give to you, and all that I am, I share with you. And and when Em and I got married, we'd just finished uni, there wasn't much that we could give to each other. Um, but when, when Jesus takes us, he says, all I am, all I have, I give to you, and all that I am, I share with you. And we, we say that to him. The cross isn't just an external thing where we, Jesus dies and says, well, if you want to believe me and trust me, you can have some forgiveness. No, Jesus takes us into himself, and we die and rise with him. And so he says, all that I have, I give to you. All my righteousness, all my perfection, I give to you. And we rise to new life with him. But only after he said, and all that you have, I'm having too. He takes our sin. And that's why on the cross, when he dies, he takes our sin and our, our dead and dying life, takes it to the grave, and he rises to give us new life. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible, isn't it? And, and I know I'm taking my time on the first four verses, but it's because it's so vital for the rest of the passage. Because what does it mean if when, we, when Jesus died, we died with him and our lives are now hidden with Christ in God? Why does it matter? Why is that where Paul goes when he's saying, don't follow the rules, look to Jesus and love him? Well, it means that my standing before God is as absolutely secure as Jesus is. It means that the only way that God will not love me is if he doesn't love Jesus. And I'm, I don't think that's going to happen. It means that God loves me so much that he gave everything for me. And my life is now hidden with Christ in God. So I can't mess it up. Not, nothing I do can destroy the life that God has hidden for me. I was trying to think about um, 
an analogy for this, and I thought of The Weakest Link, you know that game show where they go around and ask to answer questions, and then when they panic and think they've got a lot of money that I'm going to lose, they say bank. And then if they get a question wrong, that money is still safe. It's almost like our lives have been banked. We can't mess it up. We can't get a question wrong and lose everything because God has kept it safe there. I was chatting to my brother, though, and I think he came up with a better one. He said um, that it's like our lives are in witness protection from ourselves. God (laughs) knows us, and he takes our life and he keeps it safe. Because if I was to be trusted with it, I'd probably mess it up. Well, not probably, definitely. See, the gospel isn't just this offer of forgiveness and then God says, take it or leave it. It's an absolutely 100% secure, Fort Knox safe life with Jesus. We get him and our life is now secure. Now, why is this so vital for the Christian life? Why is it so vital that we get this rather than rules? Well, my kids are at the age where I like a good children's Bible. Um, and my favorite one so far that we've, we've got through is the Jesus Storybook Bible. And right at the start, um, we've got the story of the Garden of Eden. So it's called The Terrible Lie. I won't read all of it. But um, it, start, it goes here. Now, God had given Adam and Eve only one rule. Don't eat the fruit on that tree, God told them. Because if you do, you'll think you know everything. You'll stop trusting me. And then death and sadness and tears will come. You see, God knew that if they ate the fruit, they would think they didn't need him. And they would try to make themselves happy without him. But God knew that there was no such thing as happiness without him. And life without him wouldn't be life at all. As soon as the snake saw his chance, he slithered up silently to Eve. Does God really love you? The serpent whispered. If he does, why won't he eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. The snake's words hissed into her ears and sunk down deep into her heart like poison. Does God love me? Eve wondered. Suddenly, she didn't know anymore. Maybe children's Bibles aren't your thing. There's a book called The Whole Christ where Sinclair Ferguson makes a similar point. He says, Eve exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So what was the truth? Well, the truth was that God had given Adam and Eve an entire cosmos to enjoy. He'd given them everything. And he gave them one law to follow where they could show that they loved him and they trusted him. One thing to show that they they thought God was worth following. And that was, don't eat the fruit from that tree. But what was the lie that Satan came and brought? Well, it was this double suggestion that God, he doesn't want your good. He's keeping things from you. And the the other side of it, he's lying. He says, if you eat that fruit, you'll die. You won't really. See, Satan's lie says that God isn't good or generous. And God isn't truthful. He's a liar. You can't trust his character or his words. But you see, that's why this is so vital, looking at the cross And the gospel message, because the gospel, Sinclair Ferguson goes on to say, the gospel is designed to deliver us from this lie because it reveals that the behind and manifested in the coming of Christ and his death for us is the love of a father who gives us everything he has. First his son to die for us and then his spirit to live within us. Do you see why it matters that we set our hearts on Jesus and not look for rules to follow? Because if we grasp that, We're transformed by love for him. 
Think about it like this. There's loads of babies in church at the moment. And uh, babies are great. Um, there's a few people with uh, <laughs> rice smiles at the moment with lack of sleep. But um, they're great, aren't they? But they kind of mess your life up. They get poo and sick in places that you don't really want to know. Um, they stop you eating and drinking what you want. They stop you sleeping. They stop you going out. Um, but parents go through it. Now, if you said to, to me tonight, um, I'm going to get woken up every two hours. I'm not going to know how long I'll be awake for. It could be 15 minutes. It could be two hours. It could be the rest of the night with a screaming baby. And then you've got to get up and carry on like normal and go to work. I'm not sure I'm signing up for that. And that's for one night, not continually. But if you ask any of the parents um, of the young babies at the moment, they might not relish it, if they're really honest. But, but they do it. And they do it willingly and gladly um, because their love for their child. You see, they actually get pleasure in serving and looking, loving that child. They get pleasure in looking after that child, even though that men, means they don't sleep and they don't go out like they want. Um, and so Paul is saying, what you need is a new love. If you're going to battle sin, if you're going to change from the inside out, you need your heart to be gripped by a new love so you don't love the old things. And so whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, what we need as Christians is to get the gospel, to see what Jesus has done for us and be amazed and respond in love to his love for us. We, we love him and then we act in a way that pleases him because actually we get pleasure in doing that. Now I realize I'm still on the first four verses um, and I'm sorry, I know you want your dinner at some point today so I'm going to go a bit faster for the rest um, before I get paper airplanes thrown at me or something. But um, I've spent a long time there because ultimately we need to grasp that if we're going to change. Paul's clear, isn't he, that rules are not going to change our hearts. What we need is a new love. We don't want the paracetamol to mask the symptoms. We want inner transformation. So looking at the next few verses, um, I just want to pick out a few things. So looking at 5 to 17. And the first is, is don't be shocked. Paul is, is really realistic here. There's, there's a danger, we think, if we love Jesus, then we'll never sin. And if we sin, it's because we don't love Jesus as we ought, and aren't we awful? But Paul is so realistic. He says, have Jesus, look at him, and look how amazing he is, but you will still sin. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He's writing to Christians, and he's saying, put to death what's earthly in you. Jesus has started the work, but we're waiting for when we will appear with him in glory. We're not there yet. And there's another bit that I, I find quite entertaining. Um, verse 12, he says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, uh, humility, meekness, and patience. He says, you are loved by God. You're holy. You're set apart. And then the next verse, verse 13, forgive one another, bear with each other, put up with each other. Do you, I love the irony there. You're holy and you're loved, but you're going to wind each other up. The person next to you is probably going to wind you up at some point, And don't be surprised. That's, this is a letter to the church. This isn't a letter to the workplace out there um, 
or just the crowds of, of people that might wind you up. No, this is, this is everyone here. We're going to rub each other up the wrong way. Expect it. Don't be surprised. Don't be shocked. But the next thing is, is don't be shamed. Don't be shamed. It's interesting to see in verse 9 that Paul says don't lie to each other. And I think that's interesting. When we lie, what's going on? Well, there's the, the obvious, you know, unsubtle lies, isn't there? When you say, well, I ran 100 meters in 9.7 seconds, you know, should have won Olympic silver behind Usain Bolt, but, you know, it just didn't bother turning up. You know, that's obviously a lie. There's, there's those, those obvious things, and there's the kind of the little subconscious things where we put on our, our face, if you like, our mask for going out to pretend that we've got everything sorted. Other people might not, but we do, really. But when, whenever we lie, whether it's a blatant you know, untruth or this subtle covering up of who we are, why is that a big deal? Well, what we're doing is we're trying to cover up who we really are because we don't think that well, we think if anyone saw us for who we are, they'd be repulsed, they'd, they'd run away, they'd run a mile, or we'd look bad and we don't want our reputation tarnished. But you see... Um, if, if our lives are hidden with Christ in God, we don't need to be shamed at our imperfections because God has accepted us and has hidden our life so it is secure and that's the life that we trust. Not, not the messy imperfection. We don't need to be ashamed because God has got a perfect life secure for us and that's the life that defines us, not this life. So when we come to church, it's a hospital for the broken, not a catwalk for the proud. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And also, don't be stumped. I heard uh, one person joke about this, saying that um, when we read this, we, we read the Bible and see what we should and shouldn't do, what the new life looks like, but it doesn't really tell us how to do it. And I suppose when we read this, we'd be right, wouldn't we? There's, there's not many strategies Paul gives um, in putting to death our old life. He tells us what to do. But he doesn't say, okay, and so if you want to put to death um, anger, here's what you do. Step one, step two, step three. He doesn't give us those things. So the joke was, we, we read the Bible to see what we should and shouldn't do, and then we go to the Christian bookshop or Amazon to find out how we need to do it. Um, there's this frustration, isn't it? Paul, what do I do? But it's not an accidental omission from Paul where he's kind of said, you know, love Jesus and don't do this, this and this. And then forgets to finish it off for us. No, it's because there isn't another strategy for Paul other than treasure Jesus. Anything else would take us away from him, who is the, the cure, the hope, the only hope, in fact. And there's, but there's two lists of five things that Paul says were to put to death. There's the first one in verse 5. Um, put, to death, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You see, commentators say that this kind of list of five things are predominantly kind of sexual uh, in nature. That sexual immorality kind of looked at in different ways. And maybe it's, it's, it's hard. It's a question of satisfaction. Where do we turn to get our, our satisfaction, our, our joy, our worth, if you like? And Paul says, well, here's an example of the things that you put to death. But you put it to death because Jesus is your satisfaction. 
He's your joy and he is your security. He's your worth. We don't need to look outside of Jesus for our, our satisfaction and our joy. And we don't need to look at God and say, well, he's telling me don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. He doesn't want me to be happy. Because we know from on the, looking at verses 1 to 4 on the cross, Jesus gave us, or God gave us Jesus himself. The Father gave us all that he has, his Son, so that we cannot say, God, you don't love me, you don't want me to be happy. You don't want what's best for me. No, that's the lie. The truth is that God has given us everything that he has. So we cannot say that he doesn't love us. Tim Chester says the invitation of the Bible is not to a dreary abstinence. It's a call to finding God, all that which truly satisfies. It's believing that we find lasting fulfillment, satisfaction, joy and identity in knowing God and nowhere else. Like when Jesus met that woman in the well, uh, in the well, that wouldn't be good, at the well in John 7. Um, Jesus' response is that essentially sin can satisfy for a moment, but I can offer water that never runs out, that quenches your thirst and satisfies eternally if you come to me. And then there's the second list in verse 8. Now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. I wonder if these things are maybe not about satisfaction, but about when life doesn't go my way. When the kingdom where I'm the king at the center and everyone's meant to make my life work for me, and when it kind of falls apart. And, and how do you respond, Wolf? I respond by slandering other people or being angry, um, you know, taking it out on others when they're not doing things that I expect them to do for me. Maybe it's when we've said to the kids for the fifth time to get their shoes on because we're about to be late and they still haven't. And then anger wells up. I want to hurry and get downstairs to relax on the sofa in the evening. But then I go down and there's dishes to do. And I'm angry. Because I'm not getting things done how I want them. And the natural response, I suppose, is to respond like that when things aren't going my way. But setting my heart on Jesus liberates me from that anger and taking out on other people welling up. Because actually, in the universe where Jesus is king, not me, God says, you've got everything you need. And Christ, when when Christ, who is your life, in verse 4, appears, then you'll appear with him in glory. So everything is going to plan in God's world, where Jesus reigns. Maybe not in the life where I'm living for my old self, but for my new self. My life hidden with Christ in God. Everything is going right. You see, the Build the World in Mike's Image project fails. And in its failing, the, the remake Mike in Jesus' image, that project hasn't failed. And God is using all the disruptions, all the difficulties, all the things that cause my anger to make me more like Jesus. Not to destroy my life. And the last thing, and it really is the last thing, Don't go solo. The last few verses are all about how we relate to one another, verses 12 to 17. We're called to do it together. We're not called to to go it alone and to try to treasure Jesus by ourselves. We're to come and to hear God's word together. We're, We're called to speak God's word to each other, all of us, not just the person at the front. We're called to spur each other on. And we're called to sing. Isn't it great to be able to sing together again? 
And it, it's great to hear people singing out so loud. I was going to say about singing loud and, and all that, but we are, aren't we? It's great to sing together. But maybe it's a message for the people like me that really can't sing. Um, you don't want to hear me. I'm going to make sure that this microphone goes off at the end. But actually, one of the voices I, I remember the most from church is, is a guy from the church that I grew up in, where mum and dad still go. Um, he'd sit on the back row because he'd be doing the sound. Um, and he, he was even worse than me. I hope he doesn't listen to this. That's why I'm not naming any names. But his voice was atrocious. And it was loud. He, d- he didn't kind of, you know, get that people didn't... Well, actually, people did, because I'm going to say it was amazing. Because actually, I can still hear his voice singing loud and proud. I can hear the praise of God flowing out from him with joy, unashamed. Because I got to listen in to, to what healthy Christian love for Jesus sounds like. It bubbles up, doesn't it? It comes out of us. We can't help but, but sing and praise and speak of him. And so when we gather, we get to do that for each other. And we get to look at each other and go, oh, you look, I can see Jesus work in their hearts. I can hear Jesus work from the back row. And isn't that great that we get to do that? We get to model what it looks like to each other. And in doing so, we get to encourage each other. So now should we sing and encourage each other with our good singing and our bad singing?